Um, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke. So every, every year, at the beginning of the year, we look at one of the stories about Jesus in the Bible, the Gospels. And this year, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we started in Luke chapter 4, which is where Jesus announces uh, the Jubilee. He announces his public ministry, and he announces it through the lens of something called Jubilee. So it's this passage that's up here, if you want to go to the next slide, Joel, where he says, I'm, I'm here, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the captives, and sight for the blind. It's the year of Jubilee. It's this biblical dream, uh, as Nigel talked about. And that was so encouraging. Nigel, first of all, you're just natural. You weren't nervous at all. At least you didn't come across nervous. That was really good. And then it was so encouraging to me to hear that that's the invitation for each one of us, and I hope that's what we're thinking about, is what does this dream look like? What does it mean if we were to dream this dream along with Jesus? And so we've looked at Jesus' life and his ministry. Uh, and then last week we talked about Easter and his Jesus' death and resurrection. And this week is a bit of a hinge week. Because we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And kind of the passage right after is what we're going to be reading. But the next ten weeks, it's kind of putting legs on the stream. What would it mean for us as a group of people to be a people called Jubilee? What might it look like, as Nigel talked about, in, in your own life to be a person who is captured by this dream? What might that be? Uh, there's one of uh, my favorite quotes. I, I feel like I'm going to butcher it now when I say this. But it's like, great ideas need wings, but they also need landing gears. And it's like, what are the landing gears? What are we, what are we called to do as people who dream the dream of Jubilee? So we're going to look at this passage, Luke 24. It's the passage right after Jesus is resurrected, the Easter passage. So it's a pretty long one. But I'm going to read it for us, uh, as it's what the teaching is based on this morning. So Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were on their way, two disciples were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing it and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, as Jesus now speaking, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found that the eleven and with those, uh, those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road 
and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. So let's take a look at the story that's laid out for us here. It's actually one of the most interesting and uh, beautiful stories, I think. There's kind of two that people talk about. Uh, the first is, is the parable, or the, yeah, the parable of the, um, we sometimes call it the prodigal son, or the, the good father is sometimes called. And this is another one of those very generative stories. So let's take a look at, at these two guys uh, and, their, and their life and see what we can learn. So the first thing I want you to notice is that they, these two people who have been following Jesus are disappointed. They're disappointed. And so they say, we were with this Jesus guy. We followed him. He was announcing Jubilee, and we thought it was going to be uh, great. We trusted in him, it says, for redemption and salvation. But then he was crucified. He died. And some people are saying he's alive, and we went to the tomb, but we didn't actually see him there. And we've lost hope. We've lost hope that he could be the one who could bring this jubilee dream to fruition. And and I think there's a really good question for us here. What do we do with disappointment? What do we do when things don't meet the vision? And I've been trying to talk about this jubilee dream as a dream, as this unbelievable vision of what, what could happen in our lives and in our world if we give ourselves fully over to Jesus. But it's a huge dream. What happens when it's not met? And the vision for us as humans that we've been talking about in the Gospel of Luke is that we would be people who love God and love neighbor. Love God with everything that we have, love our neighbor as if we were loving ourselves. Again, it's a high vision of what it means to be human. What happens when you fall short, when I fall short of that? And we talk about the church, uh, this group of people at reality, and we say that any church can be a group of people that actually reflects the light and the glory of God into the world. What happens for you when the reality of reality doesn't meet that big dream. It's, it's disappointment. It's, it's part of following Jesus, actually, is that these disappointments happen. And there's lots of different reasons why. Sometimes, like in this passage, Jesus is bringing Jubilee. This is what he's been doing all along in the Gospel of Luke. He's bringing it, but he's not bringing it in the direct fashion that people think. He's going around. He's taking a different route. And that is a route that means for, for people who follow him, disappointment. And so... That's some of us in this room. That's one of the things that we can do when we have this great dream of Jubilee, but we don't see it happening, is we can just give up. We face disappointment and we give up. But that's not what these guys do in this story. And how do I know that? Well, they're arguing. They're arguing with one another. They're debating. They're still passionate about this Jubilee dream, and they want to make it happen. And Luke gives us a really interesting note about what they're going to do in order to make this Jubilee dream happen. Because he says that they're on the road to Emmaus, which means absolutely nothing to any of us, but would have meant a lot to the first readers of this passage. And so we need to do a little bit of a history lesson here about what's going on. So in the 200 years before uh, Jesus came around, the Jewish people were underneath the rule of the Greek people. Now, the Greeks were generally, like, they, were, they, they didn't really care too much about uh, Jewish practices and religions and beliefs. They were like, you know what, you can do whatever you want. We're the rulers. You can kind of do whatever you want. We don't really care. But within the Jewish people, they had different reactions to being ruled over by the Greeks. On one hand, there were some people who were like, you know what, being ruled over by the Greeks, not that bad. Like, I've read some of their philosophers. They're pretty good. Like, have you tried Greek salad? Like, they just call it salad, but we can call it Greek salad. It's... It's basically cucumbers and lettuce, but it, or tomatoes, it's, but it's good. You know, these guys are not that bad. Let's, let's Hellenize is the word. Let's become like Greeks. That's okay. It's great. Let's assimilate. But then there was another group of people who basically said, no, like that is exactly the opposite. We are God's people. We are supposed to be set apart in every single way. 
So that the Greeks are ruling over us is terrible, and we need to, as much as possible, resist the urge to become like them. And these two groups would fight with each other, sometimes bursting out in violence. So generally speaking, the Greeks didn't really care, but this violence started getting them pretty frustrated. And so the king at the time, the guy named Antiochus, he's like, look, enough is enough after some of these skirmishes happened. And he said to them, look, you guys are acting like uncivilized people, which is what we thought of you all along. So I'm going to call it here, and now we're going to make you become civilized, which means we're going to force you to become Greeks. So you're going to stop a lot of the things that you did before. So no more circumcision. No more kosher food laws. No more, and, and, no, and specifically, specifically, sorry, in the temple, he said, the temple used to just be for your God, now it's for all the gods. So he forced assimilation for them because of all this fighting. And of course, for the people who rebelled against them, who didn't like the assimilation to begin with, the group over here, that was not a good option for them. And so it pushed them even, even further, and they formed a militia. And, uh, and they would fight against the Greek people and the Greek government. And as often happens, there's one specific event that caused this to flare up, a big uh, rebellion to flare up. It happened with a guy named Maris Yahu, which I found out this week is actually the Hebrew way of saying Matthias. I didn't know that. We have a few Matthiases here, some Maris Yahus. So anyways, you may not like this story, by the way, if you're a Matthias. So this Matthias guy, he, the Greeks, remember, they're saying, now you're going to become Greek, so they're forcing them to sacrifice at this, at this altar. So they say to this guy, Maris Yahu, you have to sacrifice to the Greek gods. And he says, no way. So his Jewish friend comes up and says, okay, it's okay, I'll sacrifice for him. Maris Yahu, being a uh, passionate man, kills his friend kills all the soldiers, and then destroys the altar. And this becomes this uprising story for these people, where they're like, yeah, we're not going to take it anymore. And it starts this revolt, this rebellion, rebellion called the Maccabean Rebellion, led by this guy named Judah Maccabee, which is like, he's got one of the best names in all the Bible. Maccabee means the hammer. It's awesome, right? Um, sounds like a WWE fighter. So um, basically what happens is there's all these skirmishes, but this very famous battle happens in Emmaus, in the city that they're talking about. So the Greeks bring about 40,000 soldiers, it says, and about 7,000 of them are on horses. So this huge army, a way too big army. But they're like, you know what? We're just going to crush these rebels. And uh, the, the rebels have about 3,000 people, and actually they whittle their army down even farther. So there's less people. And so the, the Greek army takes about half of their people, and they're like, we're going to go crush them. So they, they pursue uh, Judah Maccabee and his army, and they think what's going to happen is they'll kill some of them, and then some of them will flee to the hills. That's just what always happens. But instead, Judah Maccabee takes his army around, goes and attacks the base camp, destroys it. These people are searching for him over here, the other half of the army. They see their base camp destroyed. They come running back, and they get beat. And this tiny little army of rebels destroys the Greek army of 40,000. And it becomes this heroic tale that happened in the place of Emmaus. Now, so, so, or, so a lot of uh, theologians would say, basically, when they're saying the word Emmaus, it means nothing to us. But it would be like saying something like Pearl Harbor for us. It's not just a place. It's something that happened there. That's what they're referencing. They're going back to that place that happened. Now, why is any of this important to us? The disciples know this story, most likely, of what's going on. And, and they still are passionate about this jubilee dream, about their people being freed, about the land being returned to them. And so how are you going to make this jubilee dream happen? Well, they, you know, they followed this guy named Jesus, 
And he promised Jubilee to take on the foreign powers and to free his people. But at the end of his life, he died. And he didn't just die like, you know, of old age. He got destroyed. They're still passionate about the Jubilee dream, but they they know that that path doesn't seem to work. And so if they're going to see Jubilee happen, they go back to Emmaus, which is basically saying, let's go back to what we know, what's worked in our history. Let's form an army. Let's form a militia. Let's wait up in the hills and let's pounce once we get the chance. Let's return Jubilee by force and by power. So that's what's going on in their minds. So there's these two options when dealing with disappointment, the disappointment of, of Jesus' death. One is that people can give up, or the other is that they get going, like these guys do. But the fascinating thing is, by the end of this passage, they don't take either of those options. What we see is instead of going to Emmaus, it says in verse 33, that very hour they returned to Jerusalem. They turned back to the place where Jesus had died. Instead of arguing with each other, they're passionately talking and sharing about this Jesus who they've met. And instead of being downcast and sad, they're filled with hope. And we're not 100% sure about this, but if they joined the disciples in Jerusalem, they probably became part of the early church. The book of Luke is continued on in the book of Acts, which we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. And in that book, we see this group of disciples joined together, not to form a militia, but to form the early church, to form a people who are called Jubilee, who radically love God and radically love their neighbor in sacrificial and beautiful ways. So what happened to these guys? What happened to them in order uh, that they changed course so drastically from going to Emmaus to coming back to Jubilee, to all these different things that I've just said? Well, it's really simple. They met Jesus. And they didn't just meet any Jesus, they met the risen Jesus, the one who has taken the violence of the world into himself, but has overcome it with God's power and God's love, that he is not dead, but he is alive. And that means, as we talked about last week, that that there's hope, that there's hope for each one of us, there's hope for our community, and there's hope for the world, that this Jubilee dream could still be happening. And so these guys go from thinking that Jesus is dead to realizing that he is alive. They go from not recognizing Jesus, he's walking with them for a very long time and talking with them, to, it says in verse 31, having their eyes opened and recognizing them. And Luke here is winking at us because he is saying what he's been saying all along, that these guys experience what Jesus came to do, which is give sight to those who are blind. They experience jubilee. Their eyes are opened and they can see the world as it actually is. They can see Jesus as he is. They experience jubilee firsthand and their lives are changed. And that's what this passage is saying to us. That what we need, ultimately, if we want to be people that are jubilee people, we need to meet Jesus firsthand. Our eyes need to be open. We need to come to know this risen Christ. So here's the question that would be a really good question. How do I meet the risen Jesus. That may be the question that's on your mind. And it's a, it's a really good one. How do I have the experience like these guys on the road? And that's a great question. And there's many different answers, I would say. So today I'm just going to stick to the one that's in this passage. But we'll, we'll kind of be going through different answers as we go along. So how do we meet this Jesus? How do we meet the resurrected Jesus? Well, what I wish I could say to you is this. This is what I wish I could say. I wish I could say, oh, you want to meet the risen Jesus? That's good news. I got really good news for you. At about 11.15 every Sunday, Jesus shows up in this room right here. 
It's weird. It's just right after I preach. It seems like just the presence of God is so thick in this place and in this room. That he's, it's just right in there. And so you can just go in. You can go in and experience the risen Jesus in there. And like with, you know, COVID and stuff, we probably, to people's comfort levels, we just need 10 people at a time, five minutes in the room. Okay? It'll take about 50 minutes. We'll all experience Jesus. And then maybe, you know, let's go for lunch. Sally Limon. We can make the decision after where we're going to go. Okay? And this is what I wish I could tell you. And of course, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And you might say the most ridiculous part is you think that the presence of God shows up when you preach. Um, but it's ridiculous because you know that that's not how it works. But it is the way that our minds work. The way that our minds work is we want to ask, what, what do I have to do in order to meet Jesus? Tell me where God is and I'll go there. Tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. If that's what's on offer. I'll meet God. But the passage challenges that way of thinking in two different ways. First, if you notice, Jesus has been walking with the disciples all along. It's not like he's far. It's not like he's distant. He's right there. His presence is right there with them the entire time. They just don't recognize him. And that could be true in our lives. That the spirit is at work and we're just blind to seeing how he's working. The second is, and this is what I want to talk a little bit more about, is maybe that there's nothing that we can do to make God show up. Better said, maybe God is not controllable or engineerable. You know, Nigel talked about some of the great things that engineers have released into our world. Engineering and thinking that way is awesome. We wouldn't have buildings that are structured like this if we didn't think about concepts like engineering, but it might not be the way that God works that we can control him and engineer him. And it runs counter to the way that we think about the world. But it's also what makes God God, that he's not controllable. And why, when we have these interactions with him, as the people do on the road, that it becomes so amazing. Let me read you a a long quote from a brilliant German sociologist named Hartmut Rosa that I think really brings this into clarity, at least for me. He says this, The driving cultural force of the form of life that we call modern is the idea, the hope, and the desire that we can make the world controllable. That's what defines us as modern people. He often says, if you were an alien looking down at the world, that's what you would see, the world speeding up and our desire to make it controllable. Yet, it's only in encountering the uncontrollable that we really experience the world. Only then do we feel touched, moved, alive. Because a world that is fully known, in which everything has been planned and mastered, would be a dead world. This is no metaphysical insight, but an everyday experience. We can just know this by looking around. Our lives unfold as the interplay between what we can control and that which remains outside of our control, yet concerns us in some way, touches us. Life happens, as it were, on the border between those two things. Take a mass phenomenon like soccer. Why do people flock to the stadium? And as Vancouverites, we might be like, yeah, why do people like soccer? Um, This is what he says. It's because, as the manager of a German national team once quipped, they don't know how it will turn out. Every game you don't know, unless you're a Canucks fan, then you know it's not going to turn out well. Um, You would just, just blank out for a couple minutes with this analogy, right? Here's what he says. Contrary to the constant complaint that soccer these days is only about the money, what makes the game attractive is the fact that victories and defeat cannot be bought or engineered. They can't be controlled. Soccer remains so exciting for many people. 
to the point that it constitutes the central focus of their libidinal desire all week long until the next round of league play begins. They are passionate about it. They're reading blogs. They're getting excited for the weekend because it is inherently uncontrollable. We don't know what will happen. And if that's true about a game like soccer, imagine how much more true that might be about God. Our God, who we say created everything in this world, who has existed before time began, when he gives his name to his people, he says, I am. I am who I am. It's like, that's not really helpful. It's like, yeah, well, I am who I am. You'll need to get used to me. I'm inherently uncontrollable. If that's the kind of God that we serve, then to ask that person to be something like a divine butler, where we can control and engineer him, just goes counter to who he is at his very heart. And this is exactly the kind of God that we see in Jesus. Jesus shows up late. He doesn't, there have been people who have been praying for Jubilee, working for Jubilee for hundreds of years. And they would say, you know when you showed up? Not when we wanted. Not when we hoped. What is he doing? He's doing things that people aren't really that impressed with. Especially a lot of things, he's breaking the rules. He's not acting in the way that they want. And then especially when he dies, this is never in the idea of the people. He's acting in ways that are not engineerable. He's not a controllable type of God. And on one hand, that really sucks. It sucks for us. And it sucks for me, just to be candid. Like, this, this is my time, right? So it, it's tough for me. Like, I wish I could, as your pastor, just be like, yeah, you want to meet Jesus? You know, do Alpha. And then, you know, read the Purpose Driven Life. And then attend the Peretz Community Group. That's where the presence of God is. And then if it you, if you, doesn't work, read the purpose-driven life again. And then, you know, I, I wish I had that process that I could just give you that would lay it out. But that's just not the way it works. It's not the way it works for any of us. And if we're interested in this kind of God, a risen Jesus, and we're interested in this kind of experience, this is what Hartmut Rosa calls resonance, where something bigger than us meets us unexpectedly and it calls out to us. It calls out to us and it affects us. It makes change in our lives and we feel moved. And we feel like not only moved, but we feel like we want to join. That we want to follow in Jesus' language. That we want to give of ourselves. If we want that kind of an interaction, then we're going to need to accept that God is at his fundamental core uncontrollable. That we cannot control him. So, the question now is then, what do we do? One option is that we do nothing. And this is an option that people do take. And it is understandable, I think. But it's not what the passage suggests. The passage suggests is that God is actually here and he is present and he wants to make himself known. And what we, we need to do is learn to watch and wait. And to create spaces that we can meet God. That's what this, one of the things this passage is teaching us. There are spaces. We can't control God. We can't say Wednesday at 9 o'clock you'll show up. But we can create spaces at Wednesday at 9 o'clock that God might show up. And that's what I want to close by talking about. What are these spaces that this passage gives to us? Let me give you four really quickly. The first one is this, Scripture. Verse 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the Scriptures. I think we have a slide for this, Joel. I didn't put it up there, but there is one. So that's what verse 27 says, that That's how Jesus shows who he is. He meets these guys and he says, all the scriptures actually point to me. That God's story is a place where we can meet the risen Jesus if we see, as our friends at the Bible Project say, that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. 
Or as the Jesus Collective, we're having a regional gathering here a couple weeks, we say that God always looks like Jesus and all scripture is properly read through him. And if you want to understand that kind of more in a holistic way, I invite you to join us uh, with the regional gathering that we're going to have in a couple weeks here. It's going to be right here in the chapel. But since I'm trying to be very quick and practical, let me just say something very tactical uh, and just like give you, give you like a, a hopefully a firmer grip on, on what I'm trying to say. So I grew up with a, a kind of a devotion or Bible reading that I would call devotional reading, devotional reading. So basically I would come to any passage in the scripture or I would have a companion book that would teach me what this passage says for me. Okay, so it was, it was like I was the center of it. And that's not a bad question. I had lots of great years of reading the Bible that way. And I would say I met Jesus lots of times by reading the Bible that way. And also had many great Instagrammable moments where, you know, I had my Bible and then my moleskin and my coffee and my Muji pen, you know, all laid out in the sunlight. Um, many great moments. But for 10 years now, I've been reading through the Bible in a year, which I realized when I wrote that it's a, it's a bit of a humble brag, but um, that's what I do. But the reason I share that is because I started with the same expectation. I started with the expectation that every time I sat down and read, I would have this kind of like meeting with God, this devotional type of meeting with God. But then I'd re- get into passages that basically I would call them anti-devotional, like the measurements of the drapes in the tabernacle. Like, what does that mean for me? Or like a massively long genealogy. Like, how does, you know, that Jehoshaphat begat Asaph help me love my wife on a Tuesday? Like, it just didn't translate very well one-to-one. And I know there will be some people here who will be like, no, I can tell you actually how that matters in your devotional life. Okay, I get it. I understand. But the point is, what I, when I'm focused like that, It didn't work for me more often than not, especially in a lot of the parts of the Hebrew scriptures. And so what I tried, I I was forced to do is actually start to read the Bible in a different way. Like it's not my story, but it's actually a story about Jesus. Like it's someone else. And I'll tell you, there are still lots of days where it's just crazy weird and crazy boring. But there are other days when I'm reading the story and it, it has nothing to do with me, I almost know nothing about it, but when I focus on Jesus... It makes more sense, and also he shows up. He shows up in very powerful and amazing ways. And as the disciples say, I have experienced too that my heart burns within me. There's these moments where the risen Jesus just meets me and ministers to me through his word, because it's his story. And I'm just getting to know him. It's where we meet him. So are you in his story on a regular basis? That's one of the places where we meet the risen God. And... um, I'll just say, if that's the passion in your life, if you share this jubilee dream and this vision and this goal, then that's one of the places that we can create and cultivate to meet with the risen Jesus. That's the first one. The second one is sharing. That these guys share. Um, And so if you notice, at the beginning of the passage, they're talking with each other. They're in community. There's not one, but there's two. And at the end of the passage, what they do is they go find a whole bunch more believers and they talk with them. So they're speaking, they're arguing, they're witnessing, they're asking questions about Jubilee and and Jesus. So the the risen Jesus can meet and minister to us when we open up to talk about him with other people. That's one of the things we learn from this passage. And, And again, I'll try to get very, very practical here, knowing this group of people here. First of all, I know there are people that are going through, you can call it deconstruction, or you just have questions, or you're skeptical. First of all, you're not alone, and I hope you're very, very welcome here, if that's where you're at and who you are. 
But here's what I find. Some people take that all on, uh, you know, specifically onto the internet. And so you go find blogs that agree with you, and there's people here that would be really helpful to have conversations with. My encouragement to you is talk about those things. What I've had uh, as a pastor, it breaks my heart a little bit, is I've had people who are on a path of deconstruction, which is fine. I, I, I probably deconstruct something in my life and faith every, like, three years. It's almost like clockwork. So I have no fear about it. But what I find is that people start down that path, and then I find out about it over here, or we find out about it over here when they say, oh, I, I, I've lost faith, I'm leaving the church. And that still may be the outcome for you. I don't know. But my encouragement to you is involve people along the way. Open up. And I hope this can be a place where people aren't afraid of the questions that you have. We all have questions. These guys are dealing with major disappointments. It's right here in the scripture. That actually can be a place where we meet Jesus if we're willing to share that with one another. The second thing I'll say specifically about this group, uh, knowing here, is that there, this is a, we call this a community church, which means that we want to know your name and your stories. So when, our, when I pray for you guys every week, I, I want to know something about you that I'm praying in some sort of an informed way. So community is, is uh, really important to us, and friendships then are something that comes out of that. But what I've found is that it's, it's easy to make friendships with people, to say hi to them, you know, your kids are the same age, you work in the same place, whatever it is. But much harder to make spiritual friendships, which are things that you actually invite a third person into that relationship, which is God himself. And that's what this passage is inviting us to do, is to take those friendships to that next level of spiritual friendship, where you can pray for one another, where you're bringing God into the conversation. It's an encouragement because that's a place where we can not only get to know and meet each other, but meet the risen Jesus. And the third thing I want to say from this passage about sharing for us, and we'll talk a lot more about this into the next 10 weeks, is that we're invited to share with Christian people about what God's doing in our lives, but also people who don't share our faith perspective. And I know that that's a very tricky thing for us to do. But that's what these guys are doing. They're just passionate. It just wells up out of them. That's how it works. And, and they, in that process of just sharing about what God is doing in their life with people who are be unbelievably skeptical with them, the risen Jesus shows up. And so an encouragement to you, are there people in your life that you're also sharing that with? Places that can be places of resonance with Jesus. So sharing. Number three is serving. I had to make all three of these start with, or all four start with an S. That was my pastoral duty this week, and I achieved it. So, finally, I'm a real pastor. Um, But what I really mean here is is not serving maybe so much, but that these folks are on the move. That's what they're, they're doing. They're on the move. They aren't stagnant or stationary. They aren't sitting put. There's all your other S's. Turned out there's a lot more antonyms for this word than there were synonyms for on the move. But that's what they're doing. They're moving. They're going. They're going to Emmaus because they're passionate about Jubilee. And the risen Jesus meets them on the way to Emmaus and redirects them in another way. And it reminds me of this old saying, it's easier to steer a moving ship than one that's just sitting in the docks. It's easier to to steer a moving ship than one that's just sitting in the docks. And there's a massive lesson for us here. Because some of us, as we've talked about in this Jubilee series, you've, you've felt this ping from the Holy Spirit in your life. That God has you know, something on tumble drive for you. Maybe, um, you know, it was when we were talking about the rich ruler, and you're like, you know, I, we feel called to give some money away. Or maybe it was, you know, hearing about one of our ministry partners, like Inner Hope, and you're thinking, oh, I, I should mentor. 
I should give. I should get involved in some way. I should sign up for the newsletter. Pray for them. Or maybe it's when we talked about being a neighbor and you're thinking about a coworker. God just put it on your heart or your mind. There's a neighbor or a coworker that you haven't been very neighborly to. And it's not like you hear the audible word of God, but you feel that heat of God calling you in a direction towards something, and then you don't do anything. You're just sitting in the docks. And I'm always for discernment, and I'm not interested in adding more to your plate. But some of us are just sitting in the docks, and then we wonder why we never meet the risen Jesus. And so there's an encouragement there that when we are engaged, that when we're actually on the move, if, if you feel God calling you in a direction and you're not sure, let's pray together. Let's discern. Let's take time. That's being on the move. But otherwise, go in a direction. And I've found in my life that sometimes if you're just moving in a direction and you're serious about asking Jesus what he wants, he will meet you there. And he'll redirect you back to Jerusalem if that's what he really wants. Are you on the move? Are you serving? So serving, scripture, sharing, and then finally, the sacraments. Verse 30 and 31, it says that he was reclined at the table with them, and he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. The table, the breaking of bread together, is where they actually meet the risen Jesus, where their eyes are opened. And we're going to be talking a lot more about this in the next few weeks, how this table and what we do here actually extends to the places that we live and the places where we make our lives in the neighborhood. So we're going to be talking a lot more about it. But let me just say for today, we, we do communion here every week, and it's the same practice. And there's pros and cons to doing communion or taking the sacraments every week. Uh, You may come from traditions that do it differently. One of the cons about doing it every week is that it can just become this rote thing. Where you just know during the first song you get up, you come to the front, you take it, then you eat the nasty you know, little wafer and then drink the kind of gross juice. And it just becomes this things that you do again and again, rather than it becomes this space that we hold that's open where we might actually meet the risen Jesus. That God actually might minister to us. That he might nourish us. The Holy Spirit might change our lives even in that moment as we come and we remember and we renew our hope that the risen Christ or the dead Christ is now alive. And there's hope for us in Jubilee. So Jesus can meet us. That's what this passage teaches us. He's dead. He's alive. He's not dead. And maybe for many of us, he's walking beside us in different ways, but our eyes are just closed to his reality. But what we can be and what this passage invites us to do, I think, is to be expectant, to hope. We can't control God, but to hope that he will show up, that his Holy Spirit will come and will minister to us and learn to create space for him in our lives. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for this word uh, and this beautiful story. Uh, I studied this studied this week. I, I'm just absolutely amazed at the depth and um, what it calls us to, and what it all says about who you are and, and what you want to do in our lives. So as we respond now uh, in singing, in giving, in taking communion together and praying with one another, we ask that you would give us vision for how we can respond in our lives in a jubilee way, how we can create space for you in our lives individually and corporately. So we ask for your spirit to be present to us now. We ask for eyes to see, and we pray that you would, the uncontrollable God of the universe, minister to us in this time. We pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.